From the Medical Republic, I'm Francine Crimmins. This is The Tea Room. The proposed capitation model in the aged care sector is set to strip the fee-for-service model away from GPs working in that space. But this month, the AMA argued for the continuation of fee-for-service and the increase of Medicare benefits for the patients GPs attend in aged care. Today, Holly Payne on the immediate push for patient enrolment and the sector's reaction to the Royal Commission into Aged Care. Holly, welcome back to the Tea Room. Thanks for having me, Frankie. So the final report was some months ago now. Mm. What's happened in the last week? Well, in the last week, the AMA has actually released a report. They're calling it the Putting Healthcare Back into Aged Care uh, campaign, I believe. So their report actually recommends the government should invest $643 million over four years uh, to increase MBS rebates for GPs providing primary care in an aged care setting. And that's interesting because it's definitely not in line with what the recommendations in the final Royal Commission report were, because those ones definitely looked at introducing a new model of primary care where practices enroll to become aged care accredited and receive capitation payments. Yeah, so I understand if we delve into that a little bit further, Mm -hmm. that the biggest implication for GPs in the final report was number 56. Could we look into that patient enrolment, Holly, and what that means? Yeah, so that recommendation, number 56, is probably what would cause the most wide-ranging and kind of crazy upheaval if it actually went forward. And lots of people really aren't keen. Um, Capitation model in the UK uh, is very widely used there. And lots of people really don't want that here. So the model would see patients having to volunteer to enrol with GPs and the GPs would have to be aged care accredited. And from what I understand, the actual practice will be an aged care accredited practice and they will only see aged care patients or those GPs will only see aged care patients once they become accredited. Yeah, and there were different opinions regarding how that would be implemented. And, you know, initially in the report, it was something like there would be, you know, a 10-year trial. But could we go into what are the details around capitation? Well, that's the thing. It was sort of light on details. And I think that might be a product of the commissioners, Pagone and Briggs, disagreeing on quite a lot of points in the report, which was kind of the first time that that's ever happened as well. (laughs) But we do know that it would span every aged care setting, so that would include home care, so patients who are still living in the community uh, but receiving home care packages, as well as the patients living in aged care facilities. But beyond that, there's not much. There's no dollar figure. Um, they Commissioners do say that capitation payments would need to be high enough to promote a proactive preventative care model. And Commissioner Briggs uh, specifically recommended several thousand dollars for high-needs residential aged care facility patients. But again, very much light on the details, and that's led to a lot of confusion. Yeah, and what's the general sentiment around the proposed changes are people for or against? It's difficult to say at this time because, as I said, quite light on details, but the majority of people I heard from seem to really not want this to happen just because 
It is so confusing. One uh, GP who I spoke to pointed out that, you know, what happens if he has a patient who's enrolled with him and then she goes on a holiday to Melbourne and breaks her foot there? Does he get capitation payments taken away because she saw a GP in Melbourne? Or does that all happen separately? It's very confusing um, at this kind of scale and having it only uh, localised to aged care patients. Yeah, and I guess it's as well, do do those benefits and those capped service plans, basically, do they follow the patient around? Like almost when you reach a certain age, do you get a separate Medicare card? Or is it very practice specific where you can only use those services at one destination? Exactly, because the capitation payments will supposedly, if the patient does see another GP, then the rebate for that appointment with the other GP will be taken out of your capitation payment if you're the original assigned GP, which is just very confusing. And especially with patients in residential aged care facilities who might have a GP might come in checking for something else and then they notice that, oh, this other patient actually has what looks like a sprained ankle and I need to act on it now or something to that effect. Yeah, I I can really see where that can be confusing. And staff training was also of particular concern in the final report. What Mm. was that about? That one got a lot of, I guess, mainstream media attention. There is actually no... There is no uh, entry-level training that is required to be working in an aged care facility. Most of the day-to-day care and activities are done by personal care attendants, the bulk of the work, really, and those people aren't required to have any qualifications in aged care anymore. So the report definitely recommended to insert base-level training that was uniform across all Uh, aged care providers, and that will specifically involve palliative and dementia care training because dementia management came up a lot in the report as well. And also that really feeds back into the conversation that was happening around COVID last year where because there is no entry-level training, you sometimes have agencies which just hire people and then give them very few hours. You have people that work across multiple facilities. And when we had a pandemic going on, that put aged care facility residents at significant risk. Yeah, so a lot of people aren't sure how much this is going to help um, and whether it's going to be brushed aside, especially given that the report specifies very long goals. They're all a few years away unfortunately. And I spoke to a few nursing professors from the University of Technology in Sydney, and they were saying that a lot of the people who have told their stories to the Royal Commission and that have informed the policy that it's kind of setting out are going to be gone by the time anything starts to happen. And I think that's a big concern for people and that a lot of the problem is to do with understaffing, especially in the nursing workforce. And There can be just these breakdowns in communications. And there's also a worry that, you know, if you've got a really good GP, if you've got a really good specialist nurse service and a facility which really recognises that the person has got uncontrolled pain and the specialist nurse and the GP, they work out what the plan is, but then there's no registered nurse overnight to administer the opioid. Having the knowledge that they have then from being trained up, is it then incumbent on them to admit the patient to hospital? And what's the ramifications then with hospital beds? And everything has flow-on effects, yeah. 
Yeah, I can see, Holly, how that is such a tricky issue. But the Commission did also include a recommendation for registered nurses to be present 24-7. As you said, that goal isn't until quite some time away, 2024, so obviously not the 10 years, but still significant. Why was that problematic? Well, as I was told by some of the people I spoke to, a lot of people will be gone by then. Um, A lot of the people who came forward and told their stories, well, they're very old and they are simply going to die. There's um, just a lot of time between then and now. Yeah, and I think the other point that was made was that it was going to take some time to train up the workforce as well. So by 2024, Mm. the amount of nurses who are skilled then in aged care, it probably won't meet the demand of the sector. Exactly. It is a growing sector um, and there's just more and more people each year. So I guess there's also a question around whether the targets that they've set out will be realistic given that the sector is growing um, in the number of patients it handles. Before you mentioned that there was a push for GPs to become enrolled as an aged care provider and then just provide aged care services, would that fall into a special interest category for general practice and what would would or could that help solve? Exactly. So unfortunately, the lack of detail in the report is very confusing but it is kind of believed by a few people in the field that maybe there'll be GPs with special interest. Um, so maybe, you know, doing extra courses in palliative care and dementia care, which will give them a aged care special interest qualification. And um, maybe uh, rolling that in with like university courses. And I spoke to one doctor, um, Dr. Leo Piedemann, who was telling me about um, how many years ago some universities had diplomas of geriatric medicine or diplomas of aged care, and those could all be done part-time. And that he was saying he believes like GPs who are going to be maybe performing just aged care services should really be funded and encouraged to do those. And antipsychotic prescribing was another thing that came under significant scrutiny what has evolved since then and, and what did those recommendations, specifically 65, set out? Yeah, so that was a really huge pain point in lots of the GPs that I heard from. It basically means that GPs won't be able to prescribe antipsychotics like risperidone to patients with dementia, which I've spoken to a lot of people and the kind of consensus is that it's putting a Band-Aid over the problem. So under the proposed changes, only psychiatrists and geriatricians will be able to prescribe antipsychotics. And there's there's just simply not a lot of them and there is no realistic way that they'll be able to cover every single aged care patient. And there's also concerns that restricting it to just those specialists will kind of you know, even more push it into like a tick and flick kind of situation. There was also the point made, I noticed in some of your reporting, that GPs were saying that when they go into residential aged care facilities, often it's the staff that are asking for these medications to be prescribed, sometimes relatives of patients. And, you know, they're told that the person can't stay in the facility unless they're given some kind of, of medication or antipsychotic. What was the issue in that area? 
That is a good point because lots of people were talking about, or lots of GPs were talking about how they often feel pressured by patients, families and aged care staff to prescribe antipsychotics um, to patients with dementia to help, I guess, keep them chemically restrained is the term. And a potential issue with this and with the proposed change of kind of banning this across the board is that there will just be something else that comes in to fill that gap that could be even more harmful. I was speaking to a professor out in Tasmania. She's a pharmacist and she was talking about how We've seen this happen in the States and Canada when they have just blanket banned antipsychotic prescribing um, and it got filled in um, with things like benzodiazepine um, and then benzos are kind of blanket banned by the government and it just ends up kind of chasing its own tail. But the general consensus I got from everyone that I spoke to is that the core problem um, in the aged care sector is a lack of staff and a lack of qualified staff at that. And I think this is probably where we're going to see the most positive change is if the government is able to recruit or put in place systems to make sure the staff that they are hiring are qualified and that people begin to, I guess, see the aged care sector as more attractive. And with JobKeeper set to end, you kind of think to yourself, wow, what if the government actually puts in some money and hires more people into trained roles in the aged care sector? You never know. Holly, thank you so much. Thank you, Frankie.